Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is a conversation about the future of liberalism with Ian Dunt. Ian will be known to a lot of you. He's um, a journalist, pretty prolific media commentator in the UK. He's the author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Next, and more recently, How to Be a Liberal, which we discuss a little bit in this episode. This was a really fun conversation. Um, Ian and me have done a few things together at this point. Um, so we kind of just took a big picture view of liberalism in the UK and the US, where we think it's at, what are the differences between the two, and where we think it might be heading. Um, so this is kind of a free-flowing discussion. I left it largely unedited, and we cover quite a lot of stuff in it. Um, so long-term listeners, I think, will be familiar with a uh, sort of lot of the topics that we broach in this. If you're newer to the podcast and interested in some of the stuff that we talk about here, but you know, perhaps want more information or to, like, get more into a specific thing that we covered quite briefly in this kind of big conversation, then, you know, we've got over 100 episodes on the Political Philosophy Podcast, so, you know, whether it's liberalism, Brexit, US politics, you know, just have a look at um, the sort of back catalogue, as it were, and, you know, I encourage you to check that out. There's plenty of stuff in here if you want more on any of the topics that we cover in this. Apart from that, let's just get straight to this. I don't have, like, an extended intro for this one. This was a really fun conversation. I liked having it, and it was definitely a conversation more than, like, a traditional interview. So I enjoyed doing it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. And, yeah, with that said... Let's get going. It is my pleasure to bring you Liberalism After Trump with Ian Dunt. I am joined today by Ian Dunt, friend of the podcast. And we can we say that? I think we're back. Hello, at that yes, point, well, right? I fucking I damn well hope so. Oh wait, are we, oh, am, I, am I swearing? Can I swear? Yeah, yeah, you can swear. All right, great. I actually put an explicit content on my podcast ages ago, and I take advantage of it by cursing like every tenth episode just to get <laughs> every it in. Tenth episode that shows a considerable degree of restraint, I think, given the events of the last few years. It, it, it's not part of my persona in the way it is yours, but. Um, <laughs> Occasionally, it's just it's just the right word. Occasionally, you know? I, th- see, I think it's often the right. I mean, I, I, as you can imagine, like I often get on Twitter being, you know, if you knew how to, you know, really use language, you wouldn't feel the need to swear. And it's like, well, that's not what swearing is. It's not like another word for bad thing. The whole concept of swearing is that it is taboo. That you're you're demonstrating the force of your, of of how you feel by virtue of breaking in a really minor way, like a taboo thing. So it's like that's what it does. That's the function of these words. So I never yeah, I, I always I always get a bit cross with people who are like, well really your vocabulary should be better and you wouldn't need to say fuck all the time. That sort of thing. No, 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 it could be much improved and I would still be saying fuck all the time, I assure you. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, my thing with Twitter is I am past the point where I proofread my tweets. Like, typos mm -hmm. are a cost of doing business, and if you mm -hmm. correct them, I will ignore you. Like, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Deal with it. I think we should go back to, like, the age of Locke and Hobbes, where you spell words how you feel like spelling them at the time. How you damn well please. And if it happens to cause centuries of philosophical confusion, then what does it matter? You know, well, that's, 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 that's good work for scholars of the ages. <laughs> it can be phonetic, but it doesn't have to be. It can be internally consistent within the sentence that you're writing, but it doesn't have to be. It's how you feel like that word should be spelt. I think I, I would very much recommend we go back to that. There's such a weird thing with Twitter, right? Which is this thing that everyone uses it as if they were basically chatting in the pub. You know, so you don't need to check it's really, you can just chat. And, and the, the, the kind of level of tone is basically you're with your mates down the pub, and that's how mm. people talk. But everyone receives tweets as if they are the final will and testament of someone's entire political viewpoints and treats it as, well, you once wrote this, you know, four years ago, and therefore this is the, the sum total of your views on it. And I think most, if you, if you, that disconnect between the way that people feel when they're tweeting and the way that it's received by the reader is basically at the heart of about 80% of the disputes that you see on that platform. It's so weird, isn't it? Because, like... You tweet in that mindset. You don't tweet as as if like you're speaking to an audience of thousands. Mm. Like it, it mm. must be even like you're much bigger on Twitter than me. But even me, I've got a few thousand followers, and like some impressive academics follow me. And I always have this thought of like, you know, like like serious people follow me. I should put my best foot forward. And then <laughs> like I'm tweeting shit like Salvador Jitek wants to have two clones so he can tweet cheat on himself <laughs> with himself. You know. <laughs> that never lasts right i always find there's like a if, if someone really impressive that i really admire follows me for like a day i'm like fuck i i better get my ship together here man i can't yeah. keep on tweeting about how good the techno soundtrack is to mortal Kombat. i've got yeah. to pull my shit together and write something serious and it, it never lasts more than a day within a day you just forget and it's lost in the smush of whatever and, and i forget yeah and i also sort of feel like take my tweets as you sort of like you say like you would banter down the pub. That's not to say there's no limits. You can, if you say something like outright bigoted, you should expect to be held to oh, account. Yeah. But like, at the same time, if you want to troll through all of them and be like, well, this here isn't quite right, I'll just go like, yeah, sure, probably isn't. You know, like... <laughs> like, you know, I like to say, I'm not expecting this to be like a sort of definitive record of everything. Mm -hmm. Like, even with my podcasts, I sometimes listen to an older episode. I'm like, what the fuck was I talking about? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, mm -hmm. Anyway. <laughs> so. So. Should we talk about serious stuff? Sure. Well, as serious as we can make it. I'll put it. on my serious voice. Serious voice. Um, so, let's... Well, before you even get to, like, politics and what's going on... Could you give us, like, a, a short summary of, like, your How to Be a Liberal book? Like, what, what's the main argument or arguments that you're trying to make there? Okay. I mean, the, the central idea was really that, let me put it this way. It's a version of liberalism. It's mine. It's the one that I admire. Um, and it's centred on the idea of the individual. And that when you lose sight of the individual in the most complex, you know, and simple way you tend to find yourself going off in very bleak directions. 
And that this has happened in our own, I mean, it's happened throughout history, but it's happened in our own period on the right and the left. And that really that's the reason that we ended up in what we kind of end up having to call the culture war, which is really groups of people that think of themselves as inimically opposed to one another in a zero-sum game based on values and identity. And that most of that is a result of the decline of the individual. On the, I think on any week in British or American politics, you will see that on right and left. I mean, the most obvious example recently is, is Labour's confusion over the flag, hmm. which I think is... is a failure to grasp how you can still retain a sense of the individual while still talking about people's sense of group loyalty. And you see this almost pumping away in every political dispute we have. So it's really the history of the idea of the individual and what happens when you forsake it. So talking of Twitter, I, I forget if it was something you said or something. I think it was something someone said to you when Biden won. Is they were kind of like, is this sort of like a final chapter, like a happy ending to your book? Because the book is written... And we've been doing commentary for what, like, quite a while now, in the age of Brexit and Trump and, you know, that whole thing. And someone sort of said, is this, is this sort of like, almost like a concluding part to your book? How do you, how do you process the Biden victory, sort of in light of the arguments you made in your book? How does it add to them or fit into them? Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing is, it, it kind of speaks to that, the thing of despair is our worst enemy mm. in liberalism. And I think it has been for the last five years. It was, it was uh, there's something about the speed of the Brexit-Trump double body blow, mm. that the, the, these events are happening really quite close together. Mm. They just robbed us of any self-confidence at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that goes all the way, you know, in polling. It didn't matter what polling you would show anyone at any time. They're like, no, we're fucked. We're definitely all fucked for, for the end of time now. And liberals were very susceptible as well to the attack that came afterwards, which was, you've lost touch with ordinary people. You don't speak to their concerns anymore. You're a bunch of metropolitan elitists, um, which for many liberals was deeply discombobulating because their entire way of looking at the world was when I'm on the size of those who are struggling, you know, those who have a hard time in life, predominantly economically, but also um, in terms of marginalization, oppression. And so that was, I think, like a real hard thing to come back from. But in fact, Throughout that period, all around you, you would see evidence that people could see a better way, right? Like, I mean, the moment, the, 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 one of the moments that really stuck with me from Trump's early days was when he did, he imposed the Muslim ban, which they then rebranded into whatever they needed to do to make it constitutional, but was essentially a Muslim ban. In the airports, it was fucking chaos in the airports. As a policy, you know, the kind of thing that was so morally abject, it would be have been incomprehensible to your mind that America would have done it even two years earlier, yeah. was now happening. And yet the image that stuck with me was those lawyers who went to the airports and sat there with signs just saying, lawyer, I can offer help hmm. to people who are coming in. And I just thought, like, I loved how practical it was, how it had no, no rhetoric around it, this yeah. act of sort of protest and assistance and solidarity. Um, and it seems to me, to me there was something deep operating in society that was resistant to these ideas and that, in fact, had been awakened by Brexit, awakened by Trump. I think it's the same thing in Britain with not just the EU protests, but also when Johnson prorogued Parliament, these sudden protests breaking up in local areas 
all around the country. And most of those, that was not organizational. I mean, there was organizations involved as well. But mostly that was people just feeling like it was it was an affront. It doesn't mean, it's not to say, you know, the majority of people are always on this side. It's just to say that there was resistance. And part of looking at the modern era of that book, I'm saying the resistance is there. It is there in the Black Lives Movement, for instance. What you're mm. seeing there are liberal ideals being mm. raised up and used against, you know, something that is trying to, to destroy them. So you can find that hope there. And having Biden win it, I mean, not, you know, I, I would have obviously preferred a trouncing victory in which Trump didn't get huge, the huge numbers of votes that he did mm. get. But it demonstrated that despair only helps the other side. Like, it, it is... A, an absolute waste of your time and a precondition of your defeat. And in fact, there are reasons to be optimistic, and I thought America demonstrated that. So here's a here's a thought. Um, do you think part of what defines, I think, both of our politics isn't merely policy or even philosophy? It's something about our disposition that I think both of us, in different ways, I have a sort of perhaps more wonky or academic presentation you have perhaps a more like swearing on twitter presentation <laughs> but like i think we're both comfortable with the idea of conflict not all conflict like i don't think either of us like other type of people who are like starting fights outside pubs i'm not talking about that but the <laughs> idea that we have disagreements and that's okay mm. or not okay but like that just is the world and so to follow, to, to, let me try and cash that out a bit. To follow on from your point, I think, you know, I mean, 2016 broke a lot of people's brains, essentially, and just stopped them thinking seriously about stuff because they were so shocked mm. by it. Mm. And we went from this idea of, like, everyone's a liberal and it's the end of history, whatever Francis Fukuyama might have meant by that statement. I think that was the attitude people have, which was always illusory, Right. Um, and I think the place we are now, where Trump's gone, but he's fucking out there somewhere lurking, that's, like, always been where, what would you call it, authoritarian nationalism or fascism is. And that's always where it's been. It's not dead. It's just out in the woods lurking. And we went from that liberalism has achieved a final victory to, like, liberalism is now crushed and dead and we're in a post-liberal world like that. And the, the, the reality is, is that it's always been a middle ground. Liberalism is a very, very, very successful ideological tradition. It's been, you know, ascendant historically in ways no other ideology has. But it, it, it's, it maybe represents 60% of the population on a good day. And when you get to a sort of progressive liberalism that I espouse, that's a minority, I mean, mm -hmm. a, a large minority, but a minority. Um, and if you're using individualism and freedom and free thought and free inquiry in a genuine sense, not merely as a rhetorical gloss to kind of defend establishment bigotry that you happen to like, but in a genuine <laughs> sense that you want to question ideas, you are very much about protecting people who are having their rights and freedoms denied, you are going to find yourself at various times in opposition to people in power and often in opposition to um, overriding public sentiments. Like, often people do get caught up in anti-immigrant moments or stuff like that. And I think both before and after, people fell off one side or the other. They said, either liberalism has won 
or liberalism has utterly failed. And no, it's a fighting ideology. If you're really concerned with questioning the order of things and reserving to the individual the right to make those judgments, you start with your back against the wall. You start mm -hmm. in conflict. Necessarily so, right? And I, I sort of wonder... I mean, I, I think we do have some differences, and maybe we can explore them. But, like, I think both of us are okay with that idea that you start with your back against the wall in a way that a lot of other liberals aren't. They either want to have won totally or failed totally, and the reality is, no, you're in a fight. You're in a fight, you know? You know, the funny, the funny thing is, <clears throat> I think one of the most, like, elegant arguments for, for liberalism from Isaiah Berlin was that argument of the fundamental nature of conflict, which is basically... The central argument is there will be no happy ending. You know, yes. like only utopians and fraudsters can promise you a happy ending. Conflict is innate to human society, and in fact, for him, because of the idea of sort of moral tragedy, you just you, you a life will involve each individual life and society at large will involve competitions between values that fundamentally can't be reconciled. You know, like yeah. mercy and justice and things like that. Because of that, conflict is the starting basis of society. So the job of the political system is to try to smooth down the edges to get rid of those jagged, cutting, sharp edges that can make that more severe than it would otherwise be. Hmm. Therefore, the open society. Now, I think that's honestly one of Berlin's best arguments and one of the ones that people talk about the least from him, which is that you start with conflict and you start with an acknowledgement of conflict. Hmm. The thing is that strikes me about what you just said is the fact that liberalism's worst fuck-ups seem to come whenever it gets complacent. Mm. Whenever it's decided in uh, in this idea of the arc of history, you know, the, and you get that one period in sort of like the early 20th century, arguably late Victorian as well, um, where really you get that massive sense of complacency from liberals and they are undermined very quickly by people. I mean, you know, it starts with the First World War, but continues with people actually pushing against those ideas very hard and liberalism just in a state of complete disarray as to how to address them. Mm -hmm. And I think you see the same in our own period. I mean, you, you see the same basically... I mean, arguably from before the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, but certainly from the, the point of the Berlin Wall falling down, of this degree of complacency. And I had that myself. I mean, I'm not excluding myself from that. I, I remember sitting in pubs and, and there would be conversations. You know, I'm, I'm on the left economically, right? So we'd say, well, what we've got to accept is the fact that the public are on the right, you know, and that's just the argument. That's where it is and it won't change. And socially, people are on the are on the sort of liberal left. And this is just the way that it is. And there was, this, you know, this sense of fossilization in in the manner in which we approach the world and that's never true it's 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 false in, in a variety of ways one of them is the fucking the ideas have got to have blood pumping through them mm. or else they decay and fall apart the other is it's just simply not true as an argument about the state of the human affairs when you stop having the argument when you back you stop having it in tv studios down the pub by the water cooler in the office and instead as liberals did i think fight them in the courts fight them in the civil service through tweaks to policy mm. through using human rights law then actually what you do is you just leave the field to those who have much more pernicious arguments and that is one of the things that happened to us people are very attracted to the idea of an end of dispute but yes. it's not possible, and it's not even necessarily desirable, because <laughs> I, I think what a lot of liberalism wants to do is maybe not end dispute, but sort of map out some basic constitutional ordering of things that, that will be command overwhelming consensus and be stable and permanent over time. But, you know, particular constitutional precepts or even like 
schemas of human rights might need to adapt to changing circumstances. We might need... I mean, think about the movement we've seen on gender roles and sexuality over the last 30 years, right? It's it's desirable that you should be able to revise fundamental yes. precepts, you know? <laughs> um, and human which human thought and human speech and human interaction isn't capable of commanding that sort of permanence um and it shouldn't right we should be in conversation about how we live you know and it's always seemed to me i mean the, the one it, it's not possible but also i think sometimes when like like this underlying assumption that the point of politics is to end politics Mm. needs a, 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 an interrogation is to actually, is that what you want? Is that desirable, you know? Don't you also think it's it's true in people's personal lives as well? Like, we, this comes down to, I think, some kind of psychological, it, it's the need for stories, mm. right? And, and that's how we, that's really how we process information, to be speaking, and any journalist will, will be able to tell you that for free, and of course, any other screenwriter, or anyone else. We need stories. And stories have endings. Mm. I think one of the things that's hard for us is, is accepting that politics doesn't have an ending mm. and that our own life doesn't have an ending. You know, all stories end with and then they lived happily ever after. And one of the things you get in people's personal life is there is no point that it's just happily ever after. You will keep on having anxiety and stress, even, you know, when you're retired with someone that you love and all the money that you need. That won't stop happening. And that need for endings in us, I think kind of is one of these these mechanisms that really stops us from appreciating what is true in politics and what is true and most beneficial for us in our personal life. It's, um, yeah, I mean, the single biggest objection, um, I literally call it the happy ending fallacy. It's interesting we went to that same metaphor. The single biggest objection I get to, like, when I try to construct, like, an original thesis, it always takes the form, if that is true, how do we get to X? If what you're saying is true, how do we get back to, just to take the case of US politics, which is my my thing, um, if that is true, the centrist asks me, how do we get back to a place of civility and bipartisanship and compromise and get away from all this tribalism? If that is true, says the leftist, then how do we get to the Green New Deal and Medicare for All and a sort of social democratic America? And my response isn't a very good one or a very sophisticated one. It's, you're asking me to tell you why things which are very, very unlikely to happen are in fact inevitable. Hmm. And I don't know what else to tell you. Neither of those things are going to happen. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, like, I, I, like, how to dress that thought up. Because I know they're not going to accept that thought. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like if, if there's no God, why be good sort of thing. It's like, well, that maybe there aren't reasons to be good, like, or maybe mm -hmm. there are, like, mm -hmm. but you're asking me to sort of, you're, you're asking my arguments to conform to a conclusion that is just freestanding and based on nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a really something very attractive, I think, in that thing that liberalism has of a combination of often very, very radical ideals um, and extremely pedestrian workmanlike case by case daily policymaking, which mm -hmm. is really what it asks you to do. And like that, 
kind of gets encapsulated to me in like an, in, in an example that uh, uh, Harry Taylor and John and John Stuart Mill using on Liberty about poison. Hmm. But they're going through the harm principle and working it out, and they go, well, "What do you do about stuff that can poison someone?" And you're like, "Well, you know, it's useful for let's say it's I don't know bleach or whatever, something to use around the house. So maybe you need to be able to you know say what your name and address is, you know, before you buy it, and everyone gets a bit of freedom taken away, but you take away the worst restrictions elsewhere." And it's just incredible to me that like you know you start with the harm principle, which I think once you start accepting things like the harm principle, you're very quickly led to the sort of policy like, well, we're going to have to start legalizing all the drugs, you know, yeah. all recreational drugs. Very, very quickly, you get to very radical policy proposals. But the way in which this has all worked out is this very kind of tedious, day-to-day -day humdrum, you know, top-button, done-up policy making. And I find that, I mean, so I think it makes it hard to sell liberalism very often to people who are, you know, much more attracted to let's man the barricades mm. let's fight you know fight the enemy it's got much more glory and primary colors to it but i find it tremendously reassuring to just think you know brother, well, we're just going to have a series of incremental steps towards an ideal vision <laughs> and, you know that's the best we can hope for I and mean, that seems all right to me i mean what, what, what's the pushback here the pushback is the left says injustice is so great that incrementalism is inadequate. Mm -hmm. that, that's the sort of challenge there, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't think what you're talking about necessarily is like the rate of change. Like, that would be my pushback. Is like the mindset you're describing doesn't mean that, that we can't be very radical in quite a short period of time on, say, ending the drug war, which I would agree mm -hmm. with. Right? It's a way of thinking about things. Liberals can... I mean, all ideologies are deeply concerned with social time and, like, how things change over time. But I think it's a myth that liberals always sort of plod along slowly, just as it's a myth that conservatives always favour the status quo. Both of those groups can be very radical reformers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, look at what conservatives have done in the last five years of this country. Like, yes. You can accuse them of many things, but <laughs> preserving the fucking status quo is not what these guys are up to at the moment. There's been none of that. No, no, it, yeah, of course. You can actually move relatively quickly. One of the things you do to, to keep in mind during this is, is you have that sort of popper idea of what are the potential inadvertent consequences of what we're doing here. Um, and that... It, people hate that argument. Like you, you can say the argument in the abstract. Everyone's oh fucking accepting it all the way. The second that you go on, you know, Twitter or anywhere else or in a political debate, and start asking what the inadvertent consequences of a particular policy proposal is, people generally take against it very strongly and tend to think that you're being cynical and coming from the other side mm. instead of just trying to test the ideas. But ultimately, you can still move quite quickly. And in fact, in many cases, have to move very quickly. I mean, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic where policymaking is taking place, especially economically. Mm. Uh, and in fact, in terms of the logistics of public health, very, very fast, while still trying to keep that in mind. And that is a fundamentally liberal idea of being open to criticism, of not treating criticism as some kind of treacherous attack or a fifth column, but actually realizing that criticism is the greatest strength that you have in order to try and achieve the things that you really want to do. And keeping that open seems to me like a very quick way of going. I'm judging by your facial expression, which I think anyone hearing this cannot hear, that you are quite skeptical of that argument. No, no, I'm not. I'm, I, I, I track back to this idea of disposition. I don't have a sort of full stop at the end of this thought. But, like, it, it does strike me that quite a lot of liberals are quite conflict-averse in a way that doesn't mesh easily with a lot of the underlying assumptions of liberal ideology, which, as you say, sort of 
in many ways he's premised on conflict, but a lot of them are uncomfortable with it. Um, I, I get the sense neither me or you are, but I, I also get the sense we're in a minority. I don't know, does that, do you think that's right? Do you think that all conflict is the same, though? Because I see a lot of people out there who don't mind having a conflict with people that they think are fundamentally distinct to them. Now, that can be politically, or it can be in terms of identity, or it can be socially. But in that capacity, they don't really mind having that, th that process take place. Because what it does is it cements the capacity for you to show unity with those who are like you. Hmm. The, the, the much harder kind of conflict... I mean, you know, I've been in the fucking trenches on Brexit for five years, yeah. right? So it's quite, it's, it doesn't even feel to me like conflict, having it, you know, get, getting cross with someone on Brexit. It's a very different concept to have conflict within people who are quite like you. You know, and those are much tougher debates to have emotionally you know for someone like me i mean i'm basically paid to fucking you know get cross with people <laughs> like and still it feels very different and, and i and, uh, sure these are both conflicts but they feel like very different emotional social experiences one of them is much more fraught with risk by the way because of course when it's with people who are like you very often that touches on your social life you know that touches on friends and family and um, so that i'm not i'm it all makes sense to me. I'm, I just wonder whether the word conflict is sufficiently broad enough to encapsulate all the scenarios in which this stuff takes place. I mean, yeah, there's a distinction there, but I think... Because what it's about is the ways in which disagreement takes place, the ways in which disagreement is managed, right? Um, it's not about the ending of disagreement. It's about, like how it moves forward and changes over time and whether it's productive or not. So mm -hmm. to the distinct, the sort of in-out group, I sort of feel like liberalism can manage disagreement quite badly on both fronts, actually. Um, so, like, in terms of, like, interleft conflicts, I'm much more of a, like, not unity person, but I do want some sort of framework in which the left can have disagreements without being enemies, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's possible with other groups outside of the left. But, you know, I, I, I said before we came on, I think American politics has um, been defined for a long time now by, like, the fallout from the 2016 Clinton versus Sanders primary, which got incredibly acrimonious and, like, very high feelings of, like, mutual distrust, and we might finally be able to see a bit of horizon on that one now. Um, but I think the way in which that disagreement took place was managed quite badly. I think people were simply talking past each other a lot of the time. And honestly, there's a lot of things on which both sides made bad points. And then, my God, you look at, like, the UK Labour Party civil war. Right. Mm -hmm. That disagreement is not proceeding in a constructive way, because in many ways, nobody could even tell you what it's about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so I think interleft conflicts, actually, it's not like we gloss over them. In some ways, we elevate disagreements which are real to a sort of astronomical symbolic importance that's not helpful sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but then with with respect to like, I actually sometimes see it the other way when it comes to disagreements with the illiberal right, in that I think there's an extension of empathy and understanding sometimes, which is unwarranted. You know, being in America... 
Yeah, I mean it. I mean it. Um, I think living in America for a long time, um, I've read so many think pieces of you have to understand the reasonable mm-hmm. concerns that motivated people to vote for Trump. These are people yeah. who were economically left behind. They've been ignored by a neoliberal system that's done all sorts of trade deals that have left their parts of the country ravaged. They're angry. They're frustrated. They're culturally isolated and looked down upon. And really, yes, Trump wasn't a productive outlet of that anger, but wouldn't anyone in that situation vent and, you know, elect someone who at least fought for them? Now, the problem with that narrative is every single detail of it is wrong. (laughs) Is it? Yes. Um, Very quickly, um, Trump supporters on average the median Trump supporter earns $70,000 a year. The median, the median Clinton or Biden supporter earns fifty. They're wealthier. Mm-hmm. Um, these are not people who have been economic, who have been politically and culturally left behind. They are massively disproportionately overrepresented within our political system. The vote of someone in Wyoming counts 70 times what the vote of someone in California counts for in the Senate. Right? They're overrepresented in our electoral college. And it's not the case that this is, and and countless empirical evidence will back this up, it's not the case that the Trump animus is coming from a place of economic concerns. They never talk about the neoliberal elite. They, they, they talk about China in a, in a xenophobic way. They talk about immigration in a xenophobic way. But no, the, the main motivating impetuses are a fear of a diversifying America in which white people are minority, a fear that Christianity um, will be persecuted, a hatred and disgust of changing gender roles. Like, like I think we have a really hard time sometimes understanding that people believe what they say. They're not, they're not saying this as like, you know, we have to do some weird hermeneutic exercise that, that when they shout, you know, chant build the wall or like lock her up, that there's some reasonable concern that, that is ex- understandable and expressible in liberal terms hiding behind it. They are saying what they believe. I think liberalism can really, really, really fucking struggle with that. Do you think that there's uh, the counter would be? Because, by the way, you saw exactly the same pieces and the same uh, empirical basis behind it with Brexit, you know, Mm -hmm. left behind communities, you know, rejecting the elite. Um, But in fact, most of the time, plenty of people sort of, you know, in very wealthy conditions. And in fact, that was the average voter was was really quite well off um, who voted for Brexit. However, there's then an electoral proposition which is slightly different to the broader sort of political one, which is saying, how do they form a winning coalition? Hmm. How did you manage to get, because both of these votes, 20, both the 2016 votes, really fucking tight votes hmm. in both cases. How do you form that electoral co- uh, coalition? And on that basis, I, I would think that there's a stronger case for an economic appraisal. The economic appraisal, by the way, is insufficient, you know, and it's, a, mm. it's an easy dream story, I think, for many on the left, just to go, oh, this is just economics. Mm. As long as we fix housing policy, mm. <laughs> this, this would all go away. And you think, no, 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 there, there's a values thing here that has to be grappled with. But then ultimately, that was part of it. And, and that when you see those debates on trade, 
I mean, especially in Trump's case, they were heavily racialized, right? Yes. I mean, you look at posters of like, you know, the white worker and you know, having jobs taken away by... It, so these things are all kind of tangled up together. Right? It, it seems to me like trade and economics were in there, often as a sort of as a sort of shading on the side of what was a sort of nativist. I, I can I can put what I'm trying to say much more concisely. I can put it in a sentence. I think we on the left have, particularly on the sort of centery columnist jerk off <laughs> left, right, um, have often assumed that what's happening is underlying economic concerns are being expressed in a racialized way. Yeah. What's actually yeah. happening is underlying concerns about social hierarchies are being expressed using economic language. I think that that's a more concise way of saying it. Yeah, yeah, that that's fair enough. And I am. Um, you then get yourself when we talk about our case by case, alleviating conflict. You know all those sort of core liberal ideas that we started with of saying, okay, so what can we work with here, mm. and what can't we work with here? And that to me seems like the much better. Um, appeal to different kinds of voters than just going, you know, the New York Times has done a piece in Detroit and it turns out everything, you need to change everything, get rid of liberalism now. Um, so part of, me, of that to me, I mean, when you look at immigration in the UK, you get some really quite interesting information there. Mm. So people instinctively wary of immigration, but you dig into the data. In fact, you find that most of those concerns are expressed around welfare and benefits, overwhelmingly so. In fact, that was by far and away the biggest concern from both groups that are opposed and groups that are more comfortable. Um, and that different kinds of professions have different levels to them. Incredibly to me, I don't know what the fuck plumbers ever did to the British people, but they fucking won't take any plumbers. <laughs> no matter where you're from, they hate plumbers. Every other, every other career, some with very low sort of incomes, British people are generally much more comfortable with them, with them coming over. Now, on that, you think, okay, so where can this work? Where can this operate? Is it possible? And this is really where a lot of the debate has to be now when we think about things like what's Labour's policy on immigration going to be? Mm -hmm. Having actually quite an open one that's encouraging diversity, but saying, well, actually, are we going to make a sacrifice on areas? And, and I don't say this happily, but it's the kind of sacrifice that I'm willing to make mm -hmm. for the kind of pro-immigration policy agenda that I think can appeal more broadly, of saying we're not going to get into the welfare fight. You know, you're not going to get into that. And in fact, you don't need to. I would suggest if I could go back in time right now to 2010, you know, a few years before the referendum. So one of the big changes that I would make to try and head it off would be let's implement the existing EU rules on free movement, as some countries like Germany would do, where if you're on benefits for a long time and you're without a job and you're not in education, then there is the capacity to, to remove you from the country. So those things seem to me like where you actually try to make some effort in order to try to alleviate those parts of what you think you can't work with and the bits that you can work with in order to try and come up with a comprehensive offer for the other side. So I've got two thoughts on that. I think I would want to separate out two questions which often get run together. One is how do you play the board as it exists? So taking public opinion as sort of writ, what is the sort of optimal policy platform for the left within those parameters, right? Mm -hmm. Now, with that, um, yeah, I'm not against making compromises. I spent a lot of time sort of preaching to the left in America that you, you have to make a compromise and vote for Biden. Even if there's stuff you dislike or disagree with there, you know, mm -hmm. you have to make that compromise, right? Um, because, you know, moral victories don't count for anything at the end of the day, you know? Mm. Um, now, 
My feeling there, though, is sometimes the best way to deal with this stuff is to sidestep it, and so instead of always fighting on the terrain which is least comfortable for you, which is like, you know, do migrant plumbers get benefits, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, I think what Biden did quite successfully, and a lot of Democrats did quite successfully, is take two or three big positive proposals of their own and just talk about nothing else. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes mm-hmm. the best way is just as... So, so like, the two races we won in Georgia that gave us control of the Senate largely ignored what Republicans were throwing at them and just double... If you electors, you will get $2,000 stimulus tax checks. Yeah. Again and again and again. I am for this. My opponent is against it. So I do sometimes wonder if a lot of it is, like changing the conversation now then i think there's a broader point which because we're not politicians right we're i I don't know how you'd say commentators something like that right i think our role is different our role isn't to optimize a particular policy platform our role is to interrogate and ideally change the sort of values that people bring to the table to begin with because i don't think we should take it as a sort of just parameter of the board that people will sort of feel this way and have these concerns so specifically on the issue of um benefits i think we've been accepting the framing for far too long that the question to be asked is who deserves it and who's scrounging off the system. Because when you look at it that way, it's very easy to just start going, they're scrounging. People whose life circumstances you know nothing about, they're scrounging, (laughs) they're scrounging, they're scrounging, they're scrounging. And that's just not... And and it also makes for bad public policy because all of the services which we all pay into, you interact with, and they are designed to interact with you with the assumption that you're doing something wrong. If you Mm -hmm. try and get unemployment... That you will go through weeks of like stupid, arcane means testing with the assumption that you're trying to defraud them, right? And I think the attitude, like I would preach, just to take the example of unemployment, would be this is a insurance program that you have paid into throughout your life and you are entitled to use if you need it, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the frame I would want to. To, to argue for and that it's just like if you have a home by a river and you pay a high premium for flood insurance and your home floods you don't feel guilty or shamed or like you're doing something wrong by getting your bloody flood insurance no you paid for it it's something you decided to get and you're entitled to that payout in the same way i've paid however much in taxes every single month and yeah like, when the time comes for me to cash out those benefits, I am entitled to them. Entitled's maybe the wrong word. So to, to, to sum up, yes, I am a big believer that pragmatic compromises have to be made, accepting the board as it is. But I think sometimes the best way to do that is to just run on a positive agenda of your own. Keep it simple, keep it popular, and we'll, we'll get to this. Keep it something that is literally and directly putting money in people's pockets. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. these big, fancy, like, technocratic schemes. We are giving you a check, you know? Mm-hmm. But then public opinion moves really fast. It, 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 it's kind of like bursts and breaks, right? Like, it'll be stable, and then it'll suddenly change. And so I do want to challenge a lot of the underlying framing, where I think the left for a long time has accepted 
the fundamental categories and concepts of the right when people like us should be challenging them. So that was a very long answer, but that's my answer. Don't you think we both sort of... Um... We, we, we have to live in both of those worlds and there's a tension there that can be really difficult for people to accept and also to even know when the tension is operating. And one of them is essentially, you know, your fundamental values, how to promote them um, and, and what they should be. And the other one is what can be achieved right now in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Mm. Um, and very often in political commentary, especially in the newspapers, what you'll find, that there's a certain degree of cynicism to it. That the first set of values are presented as a realistic appraisal of the second situation. Mm. Saying, well, Labour couldn't possibly do that because, you know, there's no way the public would ever vote for it. Um, so there's a real tilt there. And I'm not sure that people always know and are clear. And this is something that centric, you know, Year of sort of new Labour sort of type people, commentators and former MPs, who would constantly do. I mean, for years on end, you know, I would say, you know, really dur during the whole of the sort of latter part of the new Labour period, they would almost never talk about their values at all. Yes. What they would always talk about is just what can be achieved. You know, it was basically the thing of what works. And I think it's quite useful to have in your head what you're doing. I mean, I, you know, we just had the conversation about legalizing drugs. I also don't really believe in the existence of borders. You know, I want a world in which yes. people will be free to go to any country that they want for as long as they want to live with who the fuck they want to. Now, if I was sat advising, <laughs> writing a piece on how Labour wins the next election, I'm not going to say <laughs> end all borders and legalize drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's not going to be a viable thing. So it's sort of about, you do have to be clear in yourself for each moment. Is this about the pragmatism of now and how a political party may or may not succeed and what can be achieved? Or is this about the core values and there is a conflict there and i think very often within ourselves and within our groups and a lot of the disputes and the charges of betrayal that you see online are very often about people having those conversations around the side and on top of each other and to be fair it's a very difficult conflict to navigate yeah like yeah. that like if 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 the challenge is to the sort of dichotomy i created well how do you how do you solve that i don't have a great answer i don't think there is a great answer like that's that that is a hard discursive space to be in. But it's right? also isn't it a different personal emotional state? You know, like I feel like very often I wake up just fucking enraged at the state of the world, and I'm probably I'm more idealistic at that point yeah. than I am. Like another time where I'm like, well, but I really do need practical change, and how do we do it? And 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 that and that is actually a sort of more distant. Um, ultimately a less emotional space and so within ourselves on given days and different times those different urges i think are pushing away which is essentially you know on one side the other let's fuck them up let's just go take the fight to these bastards and the other of thinking well actually wait a minute you know there can be compromises here we can make steps this way so it, it is an internal struggle as well as one that we have with other people i think yeah so I'll say some positive stuff about Biden. I've been like such a normie Democrat recently. Like I'm, I ordinarily identify as quite hard left, but I've actually quite liked the Democratic Party recently. Um, I think they found a sort of way to manage this, which is more productive. Because I think we came of an age in which the left really had its tail between its legs in the wake of the Thatcher and Reagan revolutions, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And in which the sort of political movement we saw on the left was the takeover of the main left parties by a much more avowedly centrist faction with the goal of electability, right? And generally the message from... Blair, Clinton, even Obama actually to quite a high degree, to left-wing critics 
of those regimes was shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm. Like, you guys have been fucking losing for a generation. Sit the fuck down and do what you're told. <laughs> and I think people on the far left are not wrong to feel disrespected and not listened to and not taken seriously and to feel like their votes are simply assumed, right? That, that What other fucking choice do you have? Are you going to vote Republican? You know? Sit down and take austerity and neoliberalism and an expansive criminal justice system because what else are you going to do, right? Now, I don't think that the most productive way of solving that was to abstain from voting, which, which many did. Um, but I think Biden definitely recognised that as we get into a position where a substantial chunk of his electorate was not alive during Reagan and doesn't have that same, like, the, 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 the attitude can't simply be shut up and sit down, don't you remember when you lost it for us in 74? Mm -hmm. Because people weren't alive then, right? Um, and I think he's adopted an attitude which I've been trying to... I've, I've come up with this awful metaphor of a porous membrane, which is kind of gross. Um, but the attitude isn't like, here's where we are because it's popular. The attitude is there's two separate lanes, and that's fine. There's the separate lane of what we need to do to win, and then there's the lane of, like activists, organisations, commentators, stuff like that. And instead of the message from the politicians to the activists being shut up, sit down, vote for us and be happy for it, it's you talk about what you want and to the extent that you can show clear majority public support for it, we'll mm. adopt it. To the mm. extent that you can't, we'll keep it at arm's length. Black Lives Matter, you took that from something that 20% of people supported to 60%. Now Biden says Black Lives Matter. Defund the police, you took that from something 9% of people support to 9% of people support. <laughs> We're going to distance ourselves from that. But I actually think there's something quite liberal about that in a way, in that it's, it's careful, it's evidence-based. It's... Um, thoughtful. It's not just like, this is what we need to do to win. It accepts that that can change. And I think it's increasingly accepting that a more direct economic populism has become quite popular, and we can incorporate that. That certain parts of what social justice movements are advocating are quite popular, and we can take those parts. And it's sort of almost like on a case-by-case -case basis, and I quite like, like I say, I'm being a big old normie dam. I'm going to share photos of Biden with little emojis <laughs> and hearts in their eyes and, like, my president. I'm just Did kidding. You? I'm not that sick. But, like, I quite like that approach, you know? There's also, a, there's also, if you get into, it's not perfect and it's compromised, but there is something beautiful there. Because for a long time, I think liberals just weren't listening enough. You, on the Black Lives Matter sort of protests, but these are people who are facing restraints on their freedom, which liberalism just didn't fucking talk about. And yes. it would have talked about it if it was listening to people and the restraints that they were describing on their freedom. It is ostensibly supposed to be inspired by the idea of removing restraints on freedom, but they didn't fucking listen. 
Now, that process that you're describing, it doesn't mean that every, every single thing that is described suddenly gets turned into policy, but it is a mechanism by which those restraints can be described, they can be taken by policymakers, they can be stated you know, at the inauguration of a president, and they can be actualized in policy. That is liberalism working as it's supposed to by virtue of listening. And it was, you know, writing the book, I kept on finding all these instances in which British and American history reflected each other. You know, obviously, like Thatcher followed by Reagan, um, uh, Brown capitalizing the banks followed by Obama doing it, then austerity in the UK followed by America. It, it constantly seemed as if you can really see that joint narrative and why it exists. At the moment, that is not how I was feeling when you were describing the relationship between activist base and political leadership. Because, and, that, and I mean that not just on the left, but on the right as well. Mm. So at the moment, the greatest threat to the political leadership of the two major parties in the UK comes from their own activist base. I mean, you see the kind of stuff that sort of uh, right-wing think tanks and activists put out about the NHS. That's exactly the shit the Tory leadership mm. not fucking going to please stop saying that. And uh, you would feel the same when you hear, you know, the reaction in Labour circles towards the fact that Keir Starmer doesn't want to burn and shit on the British flag, which apparently proves that he is an imperialist, <laughs> colonialist swine and all of that. And so ultimately, that conversation at the moment it doesn't feel like it's happening. T tomorrow, I, I don't know when you're putting this podcast, tomorrow uh, Starmer makes a big speech on economics and we'll start to get a clearer picture of, of how that aspect of it works. Mm. But on the more cultural aspect, it, it doesn't feel that that conversation is happening in the productive way you've just described. No, I think the American left is light years ahead of the British left in terms mm -hmm. of not, not having disputes, but like... You know, being able to have a productive engagement between these different sorts of impetuses. Oh, this is a complete tangent, but I'll share this with you. There's this very much narrative in the online American left that our left-wing party, the Democrats, really sucks relative to European left-wing parties, and that our Democrats are sort of weak and, like, they'll run on some sort of, like, public-private hybrid... Um, medical system, whereas you know, the British left is just the NHS, right? Um, and the, our, our, th th there's this line that, like, in any other political party, uh, AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and Biden would be in different parties in any other system, mm. and that, you know, the Democrats are just useless compared to, um, you know, the European left, and I'm just like staring in lifelong Labour Party membership. Like, yeah. what in yeah. fuck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, so to to backtrack to the like British left, yeah. Um, I I can see a pl I can see the light on the horizon for like some sort of not agreement, but like understanding that other people are operating in good faith for the American left. I think where that comes is if Biden delivers on the economically populist bits of his agenda. If he gets mm -hmm. the COVID bill through, if he gets something on infrastructure, raises the minimum wage, gives people out checks, the left's not going to love him, but they'll accept it. And Biden right now has a 99% approval rating among Democrats. That is higher... <laughs> that is a higher inter-party approval than any president has had with the exception of Bush immediately after 9-11. Mm -hmm. Very, very high. Yeah, nothing. I don't see a light on the horizon for the British left. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't. You know? Um, and 
So, no, no, with respect... A, yeah, go ahead. I think the, the one chance really comes down to austerity. Um, the debate right now is on the pandemic. I mean, Starmer is deprived of the usual opportunities that you would have in order to demonstrate opposition. I mean, for a start, just having a, a pulpit that anyone listens to. I mean, it's hard enough at the best of times. It's really hard during a pandemic. Prime Minister's up there doing stuff in front of the TV cameras every day. You don't have things like local election results because we didn't have the elections last year to demonstrate progress, even though, you know, you look at the polling and you would expect significant progress. Um, but everything will ultimately... I think at the next election come down to the economics. And th there is a problem, there is a fundamental internal problem with where the Conservatives find themselves right now, which is that we know that Sunak, and we suspect, judging by what we're hearing from number 10, Boris Johnson, want to go on a you can't trust Labour with the economy position for the next election. So you do austerity um, quite early, probably too early economically, certainly any case you would say it was too early after the pandemic, in time to try and do some tax cuts um, in time for the next election uh, in, sort of in four years' time. Um, that's actually quite difficult for them because the gains that they made from Labour at the last election were on the basis of levelling up, which is a very different agenda to, to let's cut public spending. So there is an internal problem there. And you can see now, if you look at Annalise Dodd's um, uh, and Shadow Chancellor, starting to make those calculations of actually, no, we are willing to borrow, we are willing to, to invest, we want a fiscal anchor of trying to say to the business community, you can trust us. Hmm. You've been told by the Prime Minister, literally, fuck business. That is his proposal for you. He's implemented a Brexit deal on Christmas Day, suddenly chucking lots of bureaucratic paperwork at you. I mean, th these are not guys that are in your interest. We, however, are, we're talking your language. Her recent speech on economics was very thoughtful indeed. Um, and that actually puts Labour in a position where its activist base and its leadership think in the same way and are actually having a similar kind of debate. Now, I'm not saying it will necessarily work out that way, but if there is hope on the horizon for British politics, it's going to come through that dynamic of a division within the Conservatives' promises and the capacity to put Labour on the same footing, facing in the same direction. I, and I think Starmer does have something on his side there, which Biden has leaned into hard, which is the the consensus or like center of gravity in business opinion in financial markets in mainstream economics has shifted a lot in the last 10 years away from yeah. austerity because yeah. the time was in order to signal economic credibility the left had to run had to credibly signal that they wouldn't spend big right they had to credibly signal that they wouldn't run up the deficit and um, make harmful, often, cuts while in office to maintain that credibility. That is really no longer the case. And it's this is an example of where public, where actually not public elite opinion has changed quite rapidly. And yeah. Biden's just leaned into that. He says all the time, you know, the economists are telling us the deficit does not matter right now. Mm -hmm. Spend money. You know, so well, I think Starmer can definitely lead into that. So I mean, I think though that there's a, there is a deeper issue with the Labour Party, which is the the relationship between activists and elites isn't merely policy related. I'm not sure it's even primarily policy related. There is a deep mutual distrust there, and I don't know that that's going away with like just the perfectly calibrated economic policy. No, agreed, agreed. Yeah, I, I, completely, I, I completely agree and accept that. Um, although I would say, in fairness to the sort of Labour far, far left, sorry, the Labour far left, um, 
you, you can say to people, you've got to make these compromises, your activist base, you've got to make these compromises in order for us to do stuff. But you do need to tell them what the stuff is that you are going to do in order for those sacrifices to be made. And I don't think Starbucks has been good enough at that. We're going, well, actually, these are the parts that we will be radical. And that's what I'll be looking for in that speech, that economic speech tomorrow. So it, that, is his that is a failure of his at the moment, easily rectifiable, I think. Um, and they do deserve to hear more. And not, you know, people constantly go, present us with the policies. It's like, this is not really the right time for policies. You're quite early on. It's basically a, a, co a better concrete idea of the intellectual spine of what it is and the moral spine of what you're trying to do beyond just, I'm competent and I don't hate the flag. There has to be more to it than that. Um, but the trouble is, you know, and this is less, you know, less generous to the, to the Labour far left, is ultimately the, the distinction, the big dividing line unlike in the US, wasn't just about strategy, it ultimately became about anti-Semitism. Okay, and that is not a debate that can take place in the same way. And I have to, you know, I just, I have to say, I now expect, expect, this is not, I'm not horrified by it, I expect it, that when I see those on the sort of Corbyn sporting part of the Labour Party now talk about any political issue, they will either ignore or downplay or whitewash or justify the anti-Semitism that we saw in the party. And like emotionally, that puts you in a completely different position because you're just like, well, you, you, this is a basic moral category of anti-racism and you have failed it and you're failing it now. And so that... I what do you say to people... Gonna, what do you say to people on the left who say that that is an engineered scandal, that um, this is something that was just created and used by a party, the Tories, that has incredible internal I, 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 Islamophobia problems, and that it's completely hypocritical and stupid and just, mm. like, it's just an establishment stitch-up, essentially. That I, seems I, I would to literally be show them my... I, I could show them my Twitter feed every day. Yeah. You know, any time you see any Jewish person make complaints about this, you see constant scrolls underneath saying that they're an agent of Israel, they're a Zionist this, they're a Zionist that. I would demonstrate to them the wealth of evidence that is contained in the report, the internal report and the external report that were composed of what took place within Labour. Um, and, and I would suggest also just to... I, I've seen questions even today when I said that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn made anti-Semitic comments, saying, please look at the things in the reports of what he did and then please look at the way he responded to it. I don't, you don't need to go into the category of Jewish people say, therefore, it's true, you know, that each group, you know, just simply by virtue of saying it cannot be criticized, cannot be challenged. You can do it on the basis of the documented evidence of what we lived through for the last few years. So I just can't, I mean, of course, the Tories use it, and absolutely the Tories have a problem with Islamophobia. But my experience at the moment is that left-wing left anti-Semitism is rife in a way that I didn't believe it could be. And that I am, you can do the institutional work, fine, but psychologically and socially, I am not seeing the realisation there of the problem in order to even start dealing with it. And that is a horrifying prospect, I found, but it, it's where we're at. I found Corbyn's response really weird. Because, like, when he got... I don't know what's up with it now, but when he got expelled from the party, a lot of people really focused their ire on Starmer. Like, he always mm. wanted to get him out. Like, but then I, I looked at the interview, and he, they got up and said, you know, this is a problem, we're taking it seriously. 
you know, no, we're not going to accept people in the party downplaying this anymore. Like, within half an hour, Corbyn is on TV saying, yeah, the problem's exaggerated. Yeah. Even if that is true, even if that is true, that is not what you get up and say on TV in that moment. You oh, know? and he knew, by the way. He knew, I mean, he was, he was told, this is what's in the report. You know that the, one of the one of the key reasons this has taken place is because the leadership downwards were downplaying the problem as part of a plot by the media and by Tory forces. You know, classic conspiracy theory, and, and the kind of conspiracy theory is that almost always swirl around anti-Semitic um, moments. And he was told that he knew that that was what Starmer was going to say. He knew that Starmer was going to get up and make a speech and say, "I'm not going to tolerate it when people downplay this or call it part of a plot." And yet he got up and did it. Anyway, and then so they gave, you know, they gave Corbyn a chance to walk it back, didn't they? They said, OK, just apologise for that and we'll move on. And he wouldn't. And he did. And he did eventually. He released a statement when they readmitted him to the party, um, which is quite pointed, on, on, which looked like it had been written, you know, by, it, it, it had been very carefully written yeah. <laughs> to make sure that that process could take place. Um, but, I mean, you can't get over what took place there. And, and what I think something broke in that moment. Really, the capacity to deal with anti-Semitism in Labour broke at that moment because instead of becoming about anti-Semitism, it made it into a dividing line about whether you were loyal to Corbyn. Yeah. And as soon as that happened, it was just infinitely harder to deal with. And that, you know, months later, that's the situation that we're in right now. Yeah. Like I say, I'm, I'm comparatively, I mean, I say comparatively, somewhat cautiously, guardedly optimistic about <laughs> the American left, and not at all about the British left right now. Um, and I mean, the other... Th yeah, go ahead. Can I offer one reason to be a bit more optimistic, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, please. Um, fuck it, I'm not usually the person trying to make other people feel better, usually I'm the doom monger, but fuck it. Um... Lots and lots of Corbyn people voted for Starmer. Um, and they did that because they recognized that it wasn't working and they wanted power. Now, that fundamentally hasn't changed. It's been distorted. It's been molded. It's been toxified. But it hasn't changed. There, is that, there was that recognition there by the majority of Corbyn guys. This isn't working. We need to change it. Now, at the moment, like I said before, we're in a period where there's just no data and the data we do have is not great you know the, the vaccine rollout is is working very very well and that is boosting tory sort of polling and that's what's currently spurned the sort of level of criticism that we're seeing as starmer but over the next few years because of those dynamics i mentioned and a few other key areas and not least the fact that the government is catastrophically incompetent so even if it moves on to other policy areas it won't do very well at them and at the end of the pandemic offers Starmer a, a, a greater voice and brings back elections where you can demonstrate progress it's possible that that will start shifting a bit into a healthier relationship and some of the toxicity will go the fundamental problems on anti-semitism you know that is that is a big 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 issue that's not going to get over but there are some other headwinds that blow in a more sort of healthy direction also we have time you yes. know um, I mean, how long is it till the next election? It's got to be years, right? Yeah, we've got four years, basically. So we've got time to work this out. We don't have to have answers to everything now. I guess that's a sort of somewhat cause for optimism. I sort of wonder if there's a liberal energy that's kind of been lost. So the first time we talked, we talked about how there was a sort of activated, like, 
flesh-and-bone liberalism that had really come out in opposition to Brexit, can that be anchored to anything else politically? Like, I think that's a sort of key case. And I think the case um, in America is very similar, in that, like, can Biden achieved one of the largest... No, not one of the largest, the largest electoral mobilization in American history. More people voted for him than any other presidential candidate mm -hmm. ever. Now, partly that's population growth, but he got a very... he you know, Trump turned out his people, all of them, but we turned out everyone who could conceivably get out and turn <laughs> democratic, and there was more of us. Right. And I feel like we should like this is this goes back to like a sort of instinctive comfortability with conflict. I should I think we should sort of revel in being in the fight and be like, yeah, we beat them. We mm -hmm. beat them. You know, <laughs> we took down the first term president. That doesn't happen a lot, you know. Um, but like or um, the BLM protests were numerically larger than anything that occurred in the civil rights movement. I think someone can fact check me on that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, and again, you, you might want to sort of scale for population growth or something, mm -hmm. but it, no, it was a huge mobilization, right? Can we maintain that level of mobilization going forward now we don't... I was going to say now we don't have the spectre of Trump to haunt us, but he's still out there somewhere, and he might run again, you know? So maybe we can, but it, 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 Trump will eventually go away. Can we maintain that level of... Can we not slip back into liberal complacency, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know in the UK's case, because that sort of anti-Brexit liberalism was very strong and very powerful, but it, it didn't tether itself to a sort of to the political system in a coherent or productive way it split That's itself right. between parties um and like you know we can get into the, the sort of mutual distrust and contempt people like the lib dems and labor have for each other you know um so i don't know do you think in in the u.s i could give you a sort of sense of where I think that mobilization will go. Is there something that, that like active, real lived liberalism can anchor itself to in the UK? You you you're spot but I think that, that distinction you mentioned is one of the crucial distinctions between American and British politics, which is that you know, if you've got anti Brexit movement on one hand and you've got anti Trump movement on the other. But the thing is the anti Trump movement fits extremely neatly onto the Democrat movement. Yes. But Brexit couldn't do that with Labour. It didn't under Corbyn, and it's not doing it now under Starmer, because it's a much more complicated electoral sort of um, position. So ultimately, that has meant that there isn't, like you say, anything to latch on. There's not an organisational latch for these sentiments. It is there. I mean, we thought that that fight, and it's depressing that it always has to be negative or responsive, was going to be over uh, European human rights, over Strasbourg. Um, over the Convention of Human Rights. But that won't happen now because of the criteria that was put inside of the deal with uh, the Brexit deal. Um, and actually, oddly, I think that the departure of Dominic Cummings, who, you know, for your American listeners, was Benedict Cumberbatch in that HBO thing, who was really the culture war sort of trooper in, in Boris Johnson's administration, actually reduces some of that. But that culture war is still there, and, and yet it's done in very odd ways. I mean, at the moment, we have free speech proposals from the government for universities, which are, in fact, very authoritarian anti-free speech proposals being put forward as part of a right-wing culture war. But it's confusing enough 
that it's dividing people and sort of quite mercurial. So I have to say at the moment, outside of you know the effects of Brexit and a yearning for a more international mindset and a just supreme hatred of Boris Johnson on on a very broad part of the left, it is hard to see where those targets will be. But I do think that they are going to arise over the next, and I think probably the most likely spot for them will be economic. I think so. Should we close with that? I think that's one real note of optimism for liberalism going forward, in that I think we're not only thinking our way out of, but have actively thought our way out of, um, a liberalism that's quite cautious economically, that Mm -hmm. is sort of do, do progressive things with markets, but don't go outside of markets. And in the US, that's just gone by the window. It's like, no, we will spend the GDP of Italy in a stimulus bill. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, honestly, we will look back on this period for all the badness that's taken place as a period where a new recognition has operated on liberalism and economics that is much more active with the state in the markets. It is much more rec- recognizes the limitations of markets and the need to regulate them. And which I think re- understands the voices of marginalized people which were ignored by liberalism for too long. And so if you, it's not so easy when you're in it. But I think if we were to take a more distant historic view, we would think that this was one of those periods of liberal churn where something more profound and just and true to its principles emerged out of the furnace. It really is remarkable, isn't it, that, that um, it's not just the right that sort of affected a hypocritical concern for deficits in order to, to slash programs that they disagreed with ideologically anyway, but how the entire left was captured by this sort of very niche section of like elite opinion, like just how basically a bunch of like columnists and like talking heads, how like the entire left has been cowed for three decades by a bunch of fucking nerds who represent no yeah. voting demographic on the planet, you mm. know? And worse, when you really look at the story, by the way, of Friedman's sort of monetary theory, it's, it becomes even stranger to see how this thing took over when, I mean, really, the criticisms they were making weren't even really about reducing state involvement in the market. The, I mean, ultimately, Friedman's monetarism was actually about he wanted a different kind of state intervention. And yet from that a crucial point in stagflation where the Keynesians just were temporarily sort of startled by their inability to pull the levers and the right thing happening. And this very odd theory of monetarism that fell apart as soon as it was implemented anyway. You suddenly got this system level change that operated for decades at a time. The further you dig into what happened from the 70s on until really the financial crash, the weirder and weirder and more baffling that whole period becomes. This is a whole other conversation, but my thesis with this is it's much better explained in terms of psychology than it is in terms of economic theories or rational Hmm. self-interest, and particularly the psychology of status hierarchies. One of the things I find really interesting is you assume elites are rationally self-interested, but they're not. They're absolutely not. And one of the interesting things is elites often behave in ways to harm the people under them, even when helping them would be in their Mm self-interest. I sort of think about this as like the politics of humiliation. So on a micro scale, um, if you think about it like someone in a position of power where that power isn't challengeable. So like, why does a boss belittle and humiliate an employee when that will make them produce work 
less good work, it will make them resentful, it will make them harder to manage. Why do people on the playground bully each other when you're, you're almost inviting retaliation, right? Um, why do people... And, and my thesis is whatever answers that question, it's not rational self-interest, but whatever the answer to that is, that's the same answer to why are people in authority obsessed absolutely obsessed with hurting people at the bottom by destroying social programs, even when those social po programs functioning well would be in their rational interest. It's, it's about a desire to demonstrate your authority and demonstrate your power, even if you actually undermine your power by demonstrating it, I think. It's not, it was never rational. It was never, it was never rational, I think. You see, we were so close to ending on a positive note, and now you've brought the politics of humiliation <laughs> to, to, to put the full stop on this thing. We almost did it, man. We almost ended on a sunny disposition. Yeah. Well, the good news is that we're moving away from that. that that's the good news. <laughs> but it'll always be with us. No, you're right. That's the full stop. That's the sunny disposition right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I guess we should wrap. That's that's just gone a bit over an hour. All right. Cool. Thanks for coming on, Ian. No, man. It's a real pleasure, man. It was. It always is. Take care of yourself.